Hello everyone, I'm Karen Hardwick, a clinically and spiritually trained psychotherapist and leadership coach, and welcome to Saving You a Seat, leadership conversations from around the table. Join us as we dig deep into how the power of connection is a game changer for leaders at work and in life. This is what I know. We are not leaders having a leadership crisis. We're leaders having a human being crisis. We are often disconnected from the very things that make us fully and wholly human, our stories, our messiness, all the things we hide away about ourselves, and also disconnected from our empathy, gifts, and resilience. When we own these things that I call connection creators, we lead with more courage and grit, love and grace, self-discovery and spirituality. Connection is the antidote, folks. We don't need another leadership paradigm. We need our stories and our truest selves. We have a treat for you today. In this episode, we have the privilege of listening to Amy Julia Becker, an award-winning author who teaches us that there is wholeness in our brokenness and that connection grows when we receive the healing nourishment found in community and give those we love and lead the gift of acceptance. So I first learned of Amy Julia, and she likes to be called AJ, when I listened to her on my friend's podcast, Ian Cron's Typology. And I immediately picked up her book, A Good and Perfect Gift, and learned that in addition to our faith, both of us receiving MDivs from Princeton Theological Seminary, we have many things in common, including our love for faith, family, and finding wholeness in our brokenness. So, AJ, I am so thrilled you're here today with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. As I said to you before we got started, I wish we could just be taking a walk in the woods or or by the ocean t- and just chatting. Um, so I'm going to dive right in to the theme that I love out of so very many themes, the power of connection in our brokenness. So to give our listeners just a little bit of a glimpse I have to say that when I read your book, A Good and Perfect Gift, I was completely taken by your willingness to be real, not just about your grief and your fear relative to your daughter's diagnosis, Penny's diagnosis, but also your biases that created a certain way of thinking and judging inside of you. And this is so important for us to wrestle with, not just as parents, but as leaders and family members. So let's start with parenting. How do we honestly and intentionally be present to who our children are? Wow, that's a great question. I think for me, you're right. Having our daughter Penny diagnosed with Down syndrome right when she was born uh, helped me recognize how many expectations I had for who she was supposed to be. And honestly, I think I would have done that with all three of our children, and I would have been less aware of it if Penny's diagnosis had not interrupted that thought pattern and exposed it for what it was. And she really did having her in my life and recognizing she is not going to be who I expected her to be. And none of my children are, it's not just about down syndrome. (laughs) That's 
<laughs> me placing expectations on a baby human being, like that is just not my job as a parent. At the same time, I have this wonderful opportunity to learn who they have been created to be and to help to nurture and form and uh, allow that person to flourish in the midst of all of their limits and all of their brokenness and failures and successes. Um, That's what I get to do as a parent is to actually pray and observe and um, interact with them in such a way that I try to understand who have you already been created to become and how do I get to be a part of that? How can I encourage you, you know, if you're a a child who is afraid of taking risks, how can I encourage you to take risks, but also help you deal with your anxiety about that? If you are a child who loves, you know, cooking and reading, how can I help you to grow and develop that, but not put you on a track that says your value depends upon the grades you get in school, the places you go to college, and your net worth at the end of it all, (laughs) you know, which hopefully no parent is quite thinking in those terms, but I do think there's a sense of I'm supposed to get you there um, and there's one track and let's get on it and and never stop. So important, though, for us as parents to because uh, I say this all the time. So my son's 19 and Lord have mercy. I have had some really bad moments as a mom just in terms of my own stuff and how I put that on him, even, you know, as a therapist, even as somebody who went to seminary, even as somebody who's educated, Lord help us, um, it's hard to be just present when our fears, unconscious or conscious, can play such a big role in what we want our children to avoid or what we want them not to have to suffer through, right? There's so much we want to protect them from, including our own past mistakes and failures, right? Um, And I think there's also such a sense of identity wrapped up in our role as parents and feeling as though our value is reflected in our children's choices, behavior, appearance, all of these things, performance. And, you know, just as it is, I think, destructive to me, to base my value on achievement and performance and appearance. It's destructive for me and for my children if I base it on their achievement, performance, and appearance. But at at the same time, figuring out how do I, you know, really celebrate when you have, I don't know, sung in a recital or, you know, done something great on the athletic field, and how do I not tie that to your worth And on the flip side of that, when you get a C on a math test or you completely, you know, miss the goal or whatever it is, how does that not get tied to your worth? And yet at the same time, I'm not cheering for that. I'm not saying, oh, that's wonderful that you missed, right? So I think it's complex, but I think a lot of it has to do with like, what does it mean for our identity personally and for our children to go back to being beloved by God, not for what we do, but for who we have been created to be. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's the challenge of our whole lives. I think it is one of my favorite lines because there was a lot I highlighted in your book, but one of my favorite lines, and I'm going to read this is I had wanted to be able to change her instead of receiving change myself. And that really struck me because as someone who has navigated intergenerational addiction 
it's been very easy for me to say, to, if all those other people would change, I would be fine. Totally. So we want other people to change or to be what we want them to be, even though we realize it's insanity to wish that. So we can avoid the hard work of change and self-discovery and, and digging deep into our stuff, right? Yeah, and I think for me, um, I don't know that this is even in a good and perfect gift, but it came up in that time period where I felt like, I might have said this in the book, but I felt like I had to grieve the baby who I thought we were going to have um, in order to receive the one we had been given. So I was grieving the loss of a hypothetical child, not a real child, a hypothetical child. And honestly, it was an ugly grief because I had to come face to face with all of these things I would have said I didn't believe, right? Like I would have said that I did not tie personal worth to um, IQ points. And yet then I had to recognize that, wow, maybe I do do that. And I want to truly let go of that and get past that, not just as it relates to my daughter, but in the world to recognize what it means to actually become a person who can receive the gift of every human being not on some sort of hierarchy or ladder of value and importance, but actually in the sense of everyone I encounter has something to give. And everyone has something that they need as well. And I have something to give. Like this is, this is true of all of us. And so how can I start seeing the world through the lens of love, which is a lens of giving and receiving? So that's where that change, yes, it was changing me, but it was changing me in terms of my perspective on other people and on myself. Um, and, and yes, going through that grieving process and then in a different way than when you grieve an actual person who you lose, when you're grieving a hypothetical person, they were never there to begin with. So the grief doesn't have to carry with you through all of life if you're able to get through it because it was fake like on some level. And so that's the beauty of, I think, when we, and I think this is true for other people in our lives as well, when we can really receive people for who they are and not who we wish they were or how we wish they could be, I think there can be a real gift um, to us and a transformative something that happens uh, in that because it's really, I, I think, starting to see through the lens of love instead of fear or control. You know, I talk about this a lot with the leaders I work with, CEOs senior executives who have so much of the protective persona around them, the title, they live in the right zip code, they've done all the right things, they're at the pinnacle of what our culture says, now that's success, right? Money, prestige, power. And it's interesting because many of them are now saying, this can't be all there is. Like I have all this stuff and there's still this hole inside of me. So what's next? And I love that there's so many people in corporations and organizations wrestling with the emotional and the spiritual search right now. Like what's meaningful and how can I really show up for my people and my community in a way that's honest and authentic. I, I often say, we don't need another leadership paradigm. We need to show up fully human. We're not having a leadership crisis. We're having a human being crisis. Yeah. And I think that sense of um, 
being called to something deeper rather than to accumulating more because it is in our culture so easy relatively to just buy more and strive more and think that if I just have more, then I'm going to finally be satisfied. Um, and I do think there's a basic level of like subsistence living that we need, but for anyone who's in kind of a middle class or above, you know, anyone who's not living in like actual material poverty, there's a sense of more stuff is not actually what is going to satisfy. And so how do we, and I don't think we have many of these things as a culture, how do we employ practices in our everyday lives that actually allow for that, um, that going deeper and not just into our own souls, but in deeper in connection with other people, deeper into connection with nature, deeper into connection with our bodies, deeper into connection with God, all of those things. Uh, and I think there are other cultures that actually know how to do that better than we do. And I hope that that, that this is a time where we're at least starting to ask those questions and explore those possibilities because it's not satisfying to just have all the stuff without having that, that depth of soul. I love that. That has such benefits for every part of our life. When we can learn to slow down and find real connection in the simple pleasures, really being present and holding sacred space for ourselves. Um, but it can feel like we're pushing water uphill at times when we do that because our culture is still pushing us run faster, swipe left. And it's this whole social media, which has benefits, but it also brings us into such comparison, right? Comparison, absolutely, which I think is insidious. And at least for me, I end up either, uh, and I felt I found this with Penny. This is where I really recognized it, having a child who was not on the same developmental milestone chart as other kids, I found myself either judging other parents because they didn't have as hard a time as I did or feeling jealous of them because they had an easier time than I did. Right. And it was like, I don't want either of those things. Both of those things push me into isolation because I either am feeling superior or inferior, like, and I want to be together. And so what does it mean again for me to receive my daughter for who she is and your kid and be able to celebrate with you when something fun and exciting happens in your child's life, but also to be able to grieve when something hard happens. So I think comparison is part of it. And then I also think that going deeper in any of these things, relationships or personally, often involves exposing wounds that are painful. And it feels like it'll be better to just keep moving and pile more stuff <laughs> and not have to look at that ugly or painful, um, you know, whatever it is from our past or present. But I believe that if we can expose those wounds and actually do the healing work, ultimately we are able to experience so much more joy and love and peace and all of those good things. They are good things and they, and they come often and that sometimes they're hard earned, right? The real sense of joy and contentment and gratitude can often be, at least in my life, I've learned a consequence of going through the really tough stuff. However, because one of my jams is flaws. I love flaws because I think in our flaws, there's this richness and there's this treasure and we find our true selves as we learn to heal 
and move beyond those wounds because if we don't, I know you've seen this, I've seen this, AJ, our stuff goes down into the basement and works out with weights and it gets stronger and it will win. It, 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 it takes on a life of its own and that's where we have the intergenerational dysfunctions or people showing up in the workplace, acting out their stuff at work. Yeah, and in families and in, you know, all sorts of systems. And I think, um, yeah, you're absolutely right that it goes into the basement and works out with weights. So (laughs) I just want to pin that great line that you just had. Um, But I also, I also think of the ways that um, we, you know, it ends up hurting one another, hurting ourselves, um, and we get stuck in these cycles, but that we can also break those cycles when we're willing to look at them. And I think about the role of connection and community in that too. I was, a woman shared with me about a year ago, an article from the New York Times where they were saying that the um, anthropologists who look at ancient civilizations say that the way they mark the beginning of civilization is when they find um, bones so graveyards, skeletons, um, that demonstrate there was a broken femur that had healed. So you can see that it was broken and did not and, and was healed, which means that a community of people came around this one individual and stayed with them in a nomadic culture when that was a dangerous thing to do, to stay to, to stay in one place and not keep moving. But that sense of like, how do we mark our humanity? by our care for one another in the midst of the brokenness and that willingness to sit with the brokenness until it heals. And obviously there's work that all of us need to do in order to be receiving that healing, but that place of like community and the role we can play in each other's lives in being willing to sit in that uncomfortable and possibly dangerous place and say, I'll stay with you. I'll bring you food and water until you can heal. And then when that bone heals, like actually the place where it was broken is stronger than any other part of the bone. I mean, that's what's kind of cool about our bodies. And it's true in our neural pathways as well, that if we go through trauma and then actually heal from it, there's a strength that comes from it. So yes, like our hurt goes into the basement and works out with weights, but our healing does that too if we bring that, um, possibility into our lives, right? So I absolutely love that story. Oh my goodness, or that anthropological truth that you're sharing. It is amazing. It reminds me of the night my husband passed. I I told you that he had died five months ago from Alzheimer's. It had been a brutal journey for us as a family. And a dear friend, of course, called me that night and said, on my way. Um, bringing food. And I was so depleted and so exhausted. And, you know, the Enneagram 2 in me is the one who's jumping up and hugging and giving food and taking care of. And I must be spiritually growing because not just this friend, but another friend also. And before you know it, my whole tribe was in the house healing and feeding and nourishing. And I'm fortunate in that I have that, AJ. I have that. And that has really helped my son and I rise up and find meaning and create sacred space for ourselves. 
And there's tremendous healing in that. Tremendous. Well, and I think you're speaking to the fact that it's also, though, a um, there's a mutuality, right? I'm sure that for those friends who showed up, there was something healing in being able to bring the food, being there with you, and you being willing to receive it. So it's like a there's a both and that happens in those spaces where it's not just you were needy, but also that you were receiving their love is a part of allowing them to participate in love and in healing. So hard for me. <laughs> That's been a huge growth part for me is just letting people give to me because I'm, I'm just so much more comfortable saying, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of you. I've got this. And so that's been a really healing piece is just to be humble and surrender to other people's love and to be nourished. So I could talk to you probably for a really, really long time. Let's wrap up though, because I want to, I want you to answer two questions and talk to our listeners first. Tell us about your new book coming out, because as I said before, love the title. Thank you. Well, yeah, you can tell that healing is on my brain because I'm working on this book called To Be Made Well. And I think the subtitle has heal, you know, an invitation to healing, wholeness, and hope. And it really is about the ways uh, that we have lost sight of that interconnected healing, the mind-body-spirit, the connection to God, connection to community, and t- thinking through actually using a story from the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with both a bleeding woman and a man whose daughter is dying. So Mark chapter five. Um, So using that story as a framework to ask, what is healing? What is it? What's it about? It's not just curing or fixing, but it's about something much deeper and more holistic. What keeps us from that? And how can we participate in it? Not just personally, although that's really, I think, important, but also within our society. So again, recognizing that communal aspect of healing. Uh, so yeah, all of, I mean, that's really, that's what the book is about. It comes out in March of 2022. So we're, we're headed in that direction. So uh, yeah, it, it will be on my calendar and certainly something I know that will be on my um, nightstand. So I'm looking forward to your work, your new work. Last question for you, my friend. Um, So it's called Saving You a Seat, this podcast is. If you could save a seat for anyone, anyone, and have a meaningful conversation with them, who would that be? I thought you might ask me this question, so I was thinking about it, and I've told you that I'm an Enneagram one who likes to get things right, so that was... (laughs) wanted to get the, my answer right. Um, but I also tried to like put that aside and be like, no, really, who would it be? And I was thinking about, cause I'm, because I have a podcast too, and I get these opportunities to have these types of conversations with people right now, even who are like authors I might not have met otherwise. And I get to listen in now that we have podcasts and radio and on all these living people. And so I thought, gosh, it would be someone who I don't have that opportunity, you know, with. And I thought about some of the like civil rights heroes from our um, previous generations. So I actually was thinking about um, Dr. King because I read his book, Strength to Love last year. And it is so profoundly, not just, um, I mean, it's theologically brilliant and it's helpful, but it's also so pastorally wise. He clearly was not just a, leader and a thinker, but a pastor, someone who was in the pulpit and caring for people. And I just thought, my gosh, if I could have a conversation with him where I got to ask some practical questions about caring for people, about our culture right now, about what it means to be a one little 
attempting to be faithful person in our world, um, he's the person I would most want to talk to. Isn't that true for most of us? We are missing a voice like his. We are missing a voice crying out in the wilderness. With all of the wisdom that we have, and there's certainly inspirational people around us, I feel like that's one of the things that are missing is like this theological North Star that people can really tune into. Well, and I think that also combination of being a prophetic voice, right, a voice crying in the wilderness, the things we don't want to hear, and a pastoral voice that says, and I get it, you're so human and you're you're so strong and you're so weak. And I understand that too. So I think that was what so struck me with his writings as opposed to just the famous speeches, but looking and recognizing that, yeah, he was saying the hard things and the inspirational things, but he also was like really aware of just very ordinary people and what it meant to stand up for justice and and to fall to your knees um, in humility and desperation before God and ask for help. So I would love to, um, yeah, get hear him talk more. Isn't that true? I'm going to say one thing and then we're going to close. I want you to tell our listeners where they can find you, but you use the word humility. And I think that's so important for connection. And I'm actually doing a study on humility, a personal study. And I am amazed, didn't know it, how many times the word humility is used in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, as a bridge to God. When you are humble, you invite God in more more fully. When you are humble, God can start to really work. There's just such a theological, pastoral connection to the ability to be humble. That makes so much sense. Because when you're humble, you have an understanding of your need and can ask for God to be present in that place. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for sharing it with the world. Thank you for being here today. Where can our listeners, AJ, find you? Yeah, so the easiest thing um, is, thankfully, no one else has my name. So amyjuliabecker.com. But it's also my like Instagram handle is amyjuliabecker and my Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can find it with amyjuliabecker. But amyjuliabecker.com has you know books and blog posts and podcast episodes and all that. And free PDFs that you share your wisdom with people. Yes, all kinds of really cool stuff. So I will vouch for that. I use your resources. Thank you for them. And thanks again, AJ, for being with us today. I loved this conversation. My pleasure. Loved it too. Stay connected. Hit the subscribe button and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to use the power of connection to transform your life at work and at home, get my book, The Connected Leader, at theconnectedleaderbook.com. And for a limited time, receive a signed copy with free access to my Connection Manifesto Workbook and the Connect 7 Assessment. Again, to get your signed copy of my book and free access to connection tools, go to theconnectedleaderbook.com.